ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest episode of Good Trouble. My name is Reggie Williams, I'm the director of communications at Mass Budget. I'm one of your co-conspirators and co-hosts for Good Trouble here with Mr. Gregory Ball. Hey, what's up, Reggie? How you feeling this week? I'm hanging in there. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right, man. Listen, I'm feeling good. I feel hopeful about um, about 2022. Um, I'm I'm trying to keep a positive spirit. I feel like we're at a we're at a turning point, and I feel like you know, as we're growing and getting more good information, like we're going to get today, we'll be in an even better spot than we will than we were when we started. So, I'm looking forward to to digging in with our guests today. And who do we have joining us today, Reggie? So we have none other than Phineas Baxendahl, Senior Policy Analyst and Advocacy Director, and Colin Jones, making his good double debut, our Senior Policy Analyst focused on all things education. Colin, Finn, welcome, welcome. Good to be here. So well, Colin, we'll start with you. So we know that, whew, our K-12 school system, our early ed school system, higher education have all been taxed to the limit by the, the resource limits currently with the pandemic. Can you give us a little bit of an update on where things stand? Let's start with early ed and then movement into K-12. Uh, an update on where things stand with early education and care and K-12 education here in the Commonwealth currently. Yeah, it's been quite a journey over the past almost two years. Um, I think it's, you know, starting with the youngest kids first. I mean, it's important to remember that, um, you know, to, to a large extent, parents looking for early ed and care are kind of, they're on their own, right? They're on a, they're in a, they're out there navigating a pretty tough market, even in normal times to try to find a good quality placement for their kids under five. Um, and, um, you know, so they can work, so they can pursue um, their pursuits. And, and so when, when the COVID pandemic began, we, and actually I experienced this as a parent because my son was two at the time, we had a broad shutdown of, um, you know, traditional early ed and care um, in March of 2020. And you proceeded with kind of a sort of more emergency status where, you know, only the places that were really serving doctors and first responders and those type of individuals were, were continuing to move on. And so since this is a sort of a private system, your, your traditional daycares were closed and they were also losing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue every single month that, um, that they were closed because they depend on tuition payments. And that's um, you know, very different than in K-12 education, right? Where you just have local tax base and you have state funding that is you know, you know, connected to a, the public right to get um, a K-12 education. There is no public right to a um, quality early education, and so th that hit very differently. So I would say it was a, it was a tough situation in the beginning, um, and also it wasn't a situation where there was a ton of resources and support coming in. Um, and at the same time, though, we realized, <laughs> you know, I experienced it for seven or eight months where both me and my wife were working full time and yet childcare was closed. I think a lot of us, or, you know, <laughs> around the country, around the Commonwealth, were realizing just how important this is and what life without early education is like. Um, but, you know, for a long time, <laughs> we haven't really been resourcing it uh, commensurate with that. And so, um, so this was... Um, you know, a tough period for early ed. Um, and you actually began to see things like, you know, closures or, you know, this, the, the overall stability of these programs financially was in real question. Um, and then 
even for those who were continuing, you had to kind of navigate all the new regulations and all the safety measures. And, you know, um, you know, you're not really allowed for the most part to go into the centers when you're a parent. I, again, I experienced this. So tough situation, but um, it's been, you know, I think the, maybe the second half of the, of this COVID era, you know, you started to see greater investment. You started to see, particularly in the, um, you know, there was, uh, by the time you get to the American Rescue Plan, um, you were starting to see, you know, pretty significant investment in childcare. And, um, you know, it's still, it's still a journey. <laughs> it's still something that we're working on. And so um, there is sort of the, the basics of just making sure that this exists, that the service exists and that our, our centers are open um, making sure we have the appropriate number of teachers, that's been a real challenge um, because, um, you know, in terms of the, the resource mismatch, how much we pay childcare and early education teachers um, compared to how important they are for our <laughs> state to function, um, that's also a big mismatch where you have, um, you know, on average, you know, in the sort of 20, 30, upper 30,000 range for your average salaries of, of educators, that makes it even tougher when you're in this COVID environment as well to kind of keep that um, that train moving. So, wait, um, wait, so, wait. Did you say that in in 2021, moving into 2022, in a whole global pandemic, we're paying early education care providers only twenty to thirty thousand dollars or so? In one of the most expensive states of the union to live in. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some of that data is from a little bit, you know, you know there's a little bit of lag on that data. And, and there were a couple of approaches to try to provide, um, you know, there were some workforce grants that were, were put into the budget to try to address that. And, and I think that most of the childcare centers and, and uh, early ed centers and the family childcare as well that are home-based have been raising the flag on this for the legislature, for policymakers to say, look, this is extremely, extremely tough environment to operate in. And the, the status quo of many of the teachers are on the same benefit programs as their kids, that's not going to allow this to move forward. And so I think there's been a big focus on, um, on, on that, but it's, I think at least right now, it's not really enough. Wow. So I, before we, we jump, go further, I, I've always been interested in this. Do you think that now that people have had that, like you talked about your experience um, with, with your son do you think now that people have had that face-to-face, -face, I guess, experience um, that they will kind of change the way they rally around some of these things? Because I think that the thing that happens sometimes when we have these conversations about issues within the, the within our our, our uh, state that or that or in the Commonwealth rather, that many times we're almost a, a couple of steps away from it. But this is yeah. one of those things that kind of confronted oh, all yeah. of us. And even if yeah. you didn't have a child, you had an employee who had a child or you had a coworker who had a child and that, right. in, that impacted your, your workplace. Yeah, I think this is bringing it home for everybody. I think I think that you know if there are you know you try to look for silver linings and how crazy the last two years have been. I think mm -hmm. one of them is that all of a sudden we realize like how important this is. And, um, and typically the, the childcare challenges I described those are more for lower and moderate income folks who can't just kind of spend their way out of the problems, right? So mm -hmm. lower income folks have struggled with finding affordable care, finding good quality care for a really long time. Now that that challenge was kind of really applied to everyone, people were like, oh, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, this is what this looks like. So I think that, um, so I think there is um, an opportunity for folks to realize how important this is um, and then and then make the appropriate shifts. And, and I think that the, 
um, you know, uh, you know, if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic and how much of the federal support has come in, you know, it's it's a lot of money. It's about seven hundred plus million dollars. Now, as I mentioned, the whole field of childcare lost more than that in the three months it was closed because parents weren't paying mm-hmm. tuition. So we still have to keep in mind where we're trying to go. But um, so there has been significant resource investment. And I think there's been the realization of how important it is. So the question now is, can we bring that together? Can we use the resource that we still have at our disposal to get this system moving in the direction we want to go in? Now, anything would be better than it was before, right? So if you set the bar at like, does childcare have more money than it's chronically been underfunded three, four or five years ago, then the answer is yes, if that's your bar. But if your bar is, we want a you know full publicly funded, affordable, high quality system that everyone with a kid under five can access. We're nowhere near that, but we have the opportunity with um, with ARPA and other resources to, to move us in that direction. But the state's got to play a huge role in that. Colin, for that, for that dream state, for that universal, robust, you know, early education and care system, do you have an estimate on how much that would cost? Yeah. So before we, before uh, the pandemic hit, we were thinking we were going to try to go on this journey of looking at that question, um, which has only been emphasized even more. And what we found at the time was if you, if you actually invest what the evidence says is needed for a quality program, right? So you're paying teachers much more 60, 70 into that range. Um, and you're also capping the cost of families. So it's no more than 7%. That's kind of the standard that's been used. Um, if you do that and you apply it to all kids under five, we found that it would be about $5 billion of net new investment um, over the total public resources that were coming in. So if you count the kids who are in district, uh, public school district pre-K, you count the kids in Head Start centers, and you count the kids who have state subsidized care, um, and then you, you can, you have a capped family fee component, then the remainder left to cover um, would be about $5 billion. Now, that's like, you know, that, that's like a third of our um, education spending in our regular K-12 system. So that's a lot of investment. Um, but so this is something you always have to kind of get it, get to over time, over the better part of a decade. Um, and there's also ways to focus it, right? So if you really focus on, um, you know, and all the evidence says, if you take um, particularly low-income kids and kids of color who have um, don't have as many good options and you put them in a robust, high-quality program, I mean, really since the 60s and 70s, the research has been showing us we have these huge upsides. So you can start in those communities that need it the most and then hopefully expand um, geographically um, and in income ranges over time. And looking, I know that you touched on roughly the amount I think you said that the five billion needed to create this universal pre-K program is roughly a third, meaning that it would be like 15 billion or so for like K to 12 education, if I heard you correctly. Could you give us a little bit of an update and correct me if I'm wrong on uh, what things are looking like in the K to 12 space? Yeah, I mentioned this. So, um, you know, you know, the right to a a high quality public education um, is really strong in Massachusetts. It has to do with how our um, constitution is written. And um, that's good for us. But in some other states where it's uh, not as strong, you've seen um, real challenges in terms of getting adequate funding. But um, we, you know, we do have a, um, at the state level, a guaranteed right to a, to a, appropriately funded public education, and we have a formula which is known as Chapter 70. And collectively, what the state pays into that and what cities and towns are um, have to give into that is about $15 billion in total. Um, so, um, but 
you know, so where have we been? So actually, before COVID hit, we actually had a really exciting place with K-12 funding because we had just in 2019 passed something called the Student Opportunity Act, which was the first time in about 25 years that we had done a real fundamental look at, you know, is this education funding formula um, up to date with the needs of today? And I'll give you a quick spoiler, it isn't because what hap has happened is a lot of the formula was based on costs and all this stuff from 1993. Well, lots changed since 1993. People brought out cassette tapes at those, some of those uh, activist events to say, you know, it's been a while since we updated this. And, um, and what you had was, you know, certain things in education just cost a lot more um, than they did in 1993, especially on sort of the benefit side and special education. And then, um, right. and, you know, and we've also learned a lot more about what it takes. And I think if your end goal is, regardless of where you're born or what your parent situation is, you have a great education that sets you up for success. We've been falling short of that standard. And fundamentally, it's because unlike almost every advanced country, the United States links how much funding your schools get to the underlying values of property in the community, which means that state ed policy, so states are, um, and the federal government too, are always trying to fight this regressive thing where the richest, richest areas and often obviously the whiter areas just can spend and have a much, much higher standard. And so over the last decade and a half, the gap between what your um, low-income cities are spending and what your, you know, your uh, high-income cities are spending has just grown wider and wider. And if you look at any sort of assessment data, you can see that um, if you look at um, Black and Latino and low-income kids in Massachusetts, they look pretty much like <laughs> poor and, and, and Black and Latino kids anywhere in the country. And it's a lot of this kind of, you know, our data is made to look better because we have a lot of extremely like world-class high-performing schools that are sort of um, making the overall numbers look better. So that was what we were trying to solve with the Student Opportunity Act. It was a little bit of a detour when it wasn't funded because of that crazy COVID budget year. Uh, but now the, the budget that's in place now is funding the first year of the Student Opportunity Act, which is fantastic. But we also have to remember that um, we were kind of put in a hole by COVID, right? So you have all these things you need to do just to operate school safely, none of which we budgeted for. And so you got to do all those things and you've got to get to the goals that we were trying to get to, which is, you know, greatly increase the funding for low-income students and ELL students and all those things. And so I would say it's, it's a positive story in terms of, you know, you know, the federal government has a lot of tools that it already uses, like Title I grants and all these things. And so to, to get money rapidly to school districts, and that's what they did um, with the CARES Act and uh, the American Rescue Plan, where um, since the beginning of COVID, over $3 billion has gone into education. And that has meant that not only have we not had to cut, we can actually add services and support to get kids back. And those things that we're doing to recover from COVID are very similar to the things we've always needed to do. So um, extend learning time, expand district pre-K, um, you know, build in more mental health. All these things are things we've um, needed to do for a long time and we need even more because of COVID. That's, that's something that makes it sound like, you know, it's, it's just a larger problem that it seems like it's just been illuminated by the, the, by the whole thing of what we're dealing with COVID. 
Yeah, you know, Greg, it's not lost on me just from Colin's comments, all of the things that we really need, all the supports that we need for, you know, kids to be able to have access to early education and care, for parents to have the child care so they can go to work. And I'm also thinking about transit, you know, like how are folks getting to all of these different destinations? Finn, I'm curious if you could give us an update on what transportation looks like. I know that we've seen a lot in the news about different programs and how the T is fared during the pandemic. What are things looking like in the transit space? Yeah, it's a kind of a similar situation in, in transportation in that, you know, before the pandemic, literally like the months right before the pandemic hit, our, uh, you know, Massachusetts House legislature had passed in the House this large uh, new funding bill to bring in more resources for, for transportation. And then the pandemic hit, people didn't know what was going on. That That bill kind of never ended up going anywhere. And we had, on the one hand, people not traveling any anymore um, at the time, and it was an opportunity to fix things. And, um, but on the other hand, all these other kind of new needs that our transportation system had to do to sanitize things, et cetera. And, um, and now we got, we got this large amount of money, temporary one-time funds from the federal government to the, the, the transit authorities like the RTA and the 15 regional transit authorities, but um, you know, also to the larger Massachusetts Department of Transportation. And so right now it's this great opportunity where, you know, um, places like, uh, you know, in, in Boston and in Worcester and near Lawrence, there, there's, uh, you know, these experiments of doing really exciting things like eliminating fares on buses, you know, and so there's this great opportunity, there's this short-term money, but then we're still looking when we look just kind of off into the future, we've got, you know, still our hundreds of structurally deficient bridges, which are just going to get worse until we fix them. We've got, you know, these, you know, uh, annual shortfalls that we're going to hit by the middle of 2023 at the MBTA, where we're going to have, you know, half billion dollar budget deficits, potentially, we're, we're sort of, you know, big trouble ahead. And it's, it's just, it's, it's not clear what, what our, our elected leaders are going to do, whether they're going to take advantage of this moment to say, well, let's, Let's, you know, invest into the, the future so that we can, you know, we can have these nice things. <laughs> Let's just, you know, make them permanent. Um, but that's going to take some kind of, you know, willingness to invest in the, the future to make that happen. And it's, it's just not clear where that's going to happen. And it's so much is going to ride on it. I mean, whether, um, whether or not we're able to, to meet our climate uh commitments to for help with global warming and to help our infrastructure be able to weather, literally weather the kind of storms and, and such, which is going to happen from global warming is going to take this enormous investment. You know, whether our economy as it tries to regrow is going to get short circuited by the kind of, you know, just soul crushing uh, traffic congestion we used to have and we're beginning to have again, you know, that these are questions which really just depend on what our elected leaders do. It's not lost on me, Finn, that you said that we can have nice things, but I also heard that those nice things cost. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I remember earlier in the, maybe in the year, seeing uh, flood reports from stations, you know, in MTA stations in New York, you know, having extreme amounts of flooding. It looked like a swimming pool. I think about like the Green Line expansion past Lechmere also experiencing flooding. It sounds like climate resiliency is going to cost the same way that just making sure that 
our infrastructure can really weather these times also requires some significant investment. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sort of, you know, we as a community, when we raise revenue, taxes, fees, whatever, it's how we bring resources together to, you know, to do the things that we can't do individually. And right now we're in this kind of precious moment where the federal government has, you know, spent over $100 billion between the state and local and, and individuals in infusing us with this pandemic aid, which is great. But then either that's just a wave that recedes and we're worse off than before, or it's an opportunity. And that's, you know, we got to take that opportunity. Well, I have a question for for both of you all. It it seems to me that when we make this investment in the infrastructure, whether it's an education or transportation, is one of those things that comes back. Has that been something that you've seen in your studies? Like, obviously, we have a better educated populace than that's that I would like to think that would be better off for all of us. and, and even in the world of transportation, if we're doing infrastructure things and we're building bridges, like isn't does don't those two things kind of pay themselves back in terms of you know there's more people working and, and we have a, a better you know uh, um, a better group of people within our society and even beyond that, I'm, I would imagine you got you guys have a little bit of information around those things as well. Well, as far as when it comes to education and particularly childcare the evidence is really strong, right? So, you know, across the state, there's billions of dollars in economic um, loss when there's disruptions to childcare. And you can think about it, right? It's like, I would take this job, but, you know, when you counteract that I got childcare for two kids, I can't really take it. Or you have in the COVID era, um, a a big shift of women out of the workforce, which is a, which is a, um, you know, not something we want um, to just um, women to have to be forced because they can't make it work with childcare and they're more likely to bear the brunt of that. Um, so, um, so there's a lot of, I mean, just, just before you even get to the benefits for kids, think about all of a sudden a, a daycare teacher an early education teacher is now paid, you know, let's say 30 to $40,000. What happens when that person goes to 50, 60, 70, what can they do? Where can they invest? And how does that affect their family? And then also, um, you know, when there is a spot for workers to put their kids and they can count on what opportunities will become available. So there are some immediate things, but if you actually look at the longer term, um, we've even seen this locally when there was five urban communities, um, including Boston um, and Lowell and Holyoke, I believe, were involved that tried really good um, pre-K expansion. What they showed was basically you can close the achievement gaps that normally exist in kindergarten with a high quality program, which means you're affecting the long-term outcomes of these kids um, in a really positive way in terms of their literacy and skills. And so the challenge is always like you have to invest upfront in order to get some benefits now, but then tons of upside in the future. And so it's kind of like, you know, yeah, I remember being in grad school and seeing some of those studies and just wanting to like, you know, freak out. But it's a matter of getting like, how do you kind of bring it all together where the, there's folks get it, they're feeling it, they know where they're going long term, and they're willing to, um, you know, make the choices necessary. So, you know, it, you know, we're going to have to, you know, over the course of the next year, we're going to be asking folks for the incomes over a million dollars to pay, you know, four cents on that extra dollar over a million dollars in order to fund all of the programs that we need. And that is um, the type of conversation that we need to have in order to um, 
you know, not just have this be like, oh, we did a great thing during the pandemic and when the um, rescue plan funds came in, but then two years later, it collapsed. That's not the story you want to talk about. Before the pandemic even happened, people were saying, you know, a big problem for Massachusetts's economy to grow is that we're running out of people. You know, we were down below 3% uh, unemployment, where we have a, a an aging workforce, we're sort of, you know, we've depended, we would have had population declines many years, if not for international immigration that isn't happening anymore because of COVID and some of the policies that happened under the Trump administration. And right now we're seeing these, you know, these labor shortages that are a constraint upon growth, and they're going to be really a constraint upon growth as the economy hopefully, you know, grows into the next year. And, you know, the, these kinds of policies, education and transportation, they're, they're, they're really great um, uh, quality of life kinds of policies. Like, where do you want to live? I want to live in Massachusetts because it's easy to do this. And I know my kids are good, but it's also things that allow us to unleash our potential in this economic way, because people know they can put their kids in childcare, because people know they can get to work, because people know they can, you know, if we had the kind of rail system where people could live in Lawrence and Lowell and commute to, to somewhere else, you have affordable housing, all those things require this kind of investment. And, and you know, it's we've got to we've got to put in that investment to see the returns. You know, what, what I what I really hope is that we don't get that, you know, our our um, elected officials don't get intoxicated by this moment where right now we're living off the federal money that we don't have to make these kind of hard decisions. Mm. It, it stops us from kind of remembering that, no, 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 we've got to, you know, put things in, in order to get this, this kind of pay dirt coming, move, moving forward. That's really powerful, Finn and Colin. Thank you both for that. Cause I feel like so much of what I hear about the, the narrative around taxes and the narrative around these types of policies is that, you know, they're too expensive or they'll push people out, but the people are here. And, you know, like, <laughs> If you have the resources to pay, especially given the cost of living and all the, the great public goods and, you know, the roads, the bridges, the parks and the resources that we have, getting folks to contribute back to that should be should be delightful. But I feel like it's not as much it's, it's got a bad rep. And I'm wondering what you both think as to why. I mean, I think that, it, you know, it's. You have to paint the picture for people, you know, I think that it's, you know, you know, over the course of the next year, I think that's going to be a big challenge for us is really saying, you know, okay, what is it that we want to try to do together? And what, what would, what would it feel like again, if, you know, you know, you know, that being an an early educator is a well-rewarded long-term career that you don't have to, you know, there's, there's been some years where we've had a third of our teachers turn over in childcare because of how low paid it is, or what would it be like to just say, you know, no matter what, you're not going to pay more than 10% of your income to get a great childcare spot. What would that be like? And so, or what would it be like if we could say, you know, if you happen to be born and live in Springfield, your chances of, of you know, graduating high school, achieving at a high level and going to colleges are just the same as, um, you know, Wellesley or Weston. What would that be like? What would it take to do that? And if we can get people inspired by that, I think then we start to have a conversation of, okay, what do we need to do? But if we start with like, let me talk about marginal rates and, and the new, you know, levy and, you know, like they'll get people, you know, kind of get people shutting off. And so 
I think it's it's like we're not, you know, obviously we want a just and fair and adequate tax system. And we know that, you know, the way it's been going <laughs> in many ways federally and even at the state level, um, you know, it's not been very fair and we want to fix it for fairness's sake. But we also are trying to, you know, we want you know, the, you know, we want all these systems and, and goods to be to be great and um, to, you know, that we want the, that lifestyle. And so I think if we get people bought into that, um, I, I definitely found that was the case with the bill up to the Student Opportunity Act, where I would go to different communities. And I would say, if we got this done, do you know that Springfield will get $100 million every single year in extra funding? What would you guys be doing with that? And when that conversation with them and their elected officials was very different, because it was not just like, let me talk about all these problems. It was like, what when we fix it what is that going to do and, and let's get excited about that yeah i mean i, mean, I, I think over recent years there's been a kind of fraying of a sense of common purpose often in in our country and and we we don't help that if we end up just talking in in you know wonk talk that doesn't that people don't relate to there's also i think there was a a real tendency to talk about um our government not as um you know what we raise resources to do together for the things we can't do individually or the way we achieve our, our rights but to talk about, about it almost like a vending machine where people think of like oh okay how much i put in put in this much of taxes and then what did, is it that came out and sort of well was that worth it and this is you know i think that that kind of trans purely transactional thing one of the things it misses is that so much of what we get things like security or you know knowing that the the you know sidewalk is going to be there are things that we should take for granted and when they work we take them for granted so it's sort of we don't appreciate those things that we're taking for granted and it just uh, it's it's a way that gets people not recognizing the, the value of these things until they're missing and they're pissed off and you know, I, I think where we've seen recently with um, the whole thing around free fares is that you know, people have realized kind of, wait a second, why do we treat fares on buses any different than we do something like sidewalks? That this is just something where, you know, why create this whole apparatus to charge people to enter? And this is just a public good. And we, we need to embrace these public goods and, and invest in them. I remember there were some stops on the T at one point in time where you had to pay an exit toll. Like, you know, like, and I remember, you know, I think I was in high school and it's like, oh, like if my, if my Charlie card's not tapping, like, how do I get out of the station? You know, thinking about how we're making things equitable, like when you don't have the resources, when you don't have that, when you have to spend that last dollar on something that should be public and should be free and open to all, it just continually reminds me that, you know, access is inequitable for everyone to attain, but we can change that because policy is one of the ways in which we can do so. Yeah. You know, Reggie, it's interesting that you say that though. When you talk about getting on the train and you have to pay to get off. There, I remember there were places, and still to this day, there are places on the T where you can get on the train for free and go on about your way. Like if you're on, on right spot and calm Ave, just mm. in the interest of keeping people moving, They'll just yep. get everybody on and just boom, you can go. So if we're doing that, then why not? And then one of the other things, and I'm sorry, this is me on a soapbox for a second. One of the other things that gets me, and, I, and I'm glad we have Finn here, because maybe Finn can give me some light on this. Now go preach, preach. <laughs> one of the things that drives me insane is like, I follow a couple of Instagram um, accounts that show old Boston 
and I see streetcars in many, many of those pictures. Streetcars that go up and down Blue Hill Ave and Columbia Road and all these places where there are no streetcars to this day and they're all replaced by buses. And I always wonder, why don't we have those streetcars in, because it feels like every time we want to expand, we throw a bus line or we add an additional um, commuter rail station and those are not, those don't feel like they're effective ways to get people plugged into riding the train more. Is that the case or am I just, you know, is that just something I'm feeling, Finn? Or is, there is, is it just me so just there is a shaking whole... my fist at this bus? So there is a whole debate about the kind of, you know, I, I think the the one thing which is clear is that people tend to feel better about rail. Like it's not going to move. It's not going to get canceled the next way. It feels more permanent, mm. something that you can depend on a little bit more. Um, but, you know, some of that is just historically because bus service has been underfunded and rail that tends to go to the whiter suburbs gets you know, funded better. So some of that is, you know, the just historical past and, mm. and also buses, they've been finding, you know, ways to make buses a lot better. You and I are going to have a, a, a sharp conversation about bus lanes one of these days, Greg, but Listen, bus man. lanes make a big difference. I know you're not a fan, but bus lanes make a huge difference. Having buses where people have paid before they get on having, there's a lot of things they've done and have done in other countries and other cities really effectively to make a difference. Listen, I think if anybody can convince me in the value of bus lanes, I have faith in Dr. B. I know that this can happen. That you can do this. It's well, a future I, episode here. That, that we will have a special Get Greg to Believe in Bus Lanes episode of Good Trouble Podcast. And before, and before uh, we lose Colin, I just wanted to ask Colin, in terms of you know, the, you know, Greg mentioned ComEv, and I think about like, you know, colleges and universities. What's the, what's your take on higher education currently? We're seeing a lot about canceling student debt and debt-free programs. Just any, any last, any last thoughts on, on education from a higher education yeah, perspective? It should be, I mean, this is, this is another area where there was very significant federal support for the campuses. And, um, you know, although we have to start with the fact that, you know, there was a ton of disruption to in-person learning, dorm life, student life, a lot of things that were the revenue streams of colleges were disrupted by COVID. Um, so, uh, but there was, you know, a lot of funding to, for both the students and the campuses themselves that have come between um, the first um, major bill that had education, which is called the CARES Act through the American Rescue Plan. So I think it's, we're still, but we haven't done, um, which I think we have in K-12 education and I think is starting to come together in childcare is we haven't necessarily come together to say, here's our investment plan for making UMass and the state colleges and the community colleges, what we want them to be. And I think part of that has to do with, you know, we're so, you know, we fall back on our private schools and how important they are in Massachusetts, but, you know, they're educating a lot of out of state folks. And if you look at who, where, um, uh, you know, a couple members of my family go to UMass and or GCC Greenfield Community College out in Western Mass. And, you know, it's our state universities that are educating a lot of our kids who stay here. And so there is this opportunity because there's, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone to students to allow them to cover living expenses and hopefully have them come back because there's been um, significant enrollment declines in higher ed. 
but we still have to figure out where do we go from here and where's the um like what's the vision um to take this our campuses to the next level and so if with i mean the the upside is there um if we use the resources now to build towards a bigger plan but there's also the risk that we miss the opportunity. And a lot of that has to do with getting, um, you know, higher education groups and organizers and labor and everyone together to say, we don't agree on everything, but like, we all believe this is important. So how do we communicate to the public that this is important versus like, oh, it's just another thing. Oh, it's an afterthought. Or, you know, we really want to kind of elevate that issue. And, and I don't want to underestimate that because it took basically 10 years of work to achieve a, a big update to the K-12 funding system. It may take that long to get a big update to the higher ed system. And so that's going to be kind of on the ground organizing. I believe that organizing and vision of what do we want UMass to be? What do we want our state using community colleges to be? And um, that's kind of where we're missing. I mean, we have a lot of numbers about like if we did a big investment plan and had no tuition, what would that cost? We've done a lot of that. But what's kind of missing, in my opinion, is kind of that the grassroots um, community coming together and saying, okay, here's our, here's our plan for how we move forward. I love hearing you talk about education, Colin. I always <laughs> learn so much. Yeah. You get some hot takes today. Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining us. We know that you have to jump. Yeah. Speaking of care. Thank you guys. Finn with, with you, like, like we were talking about this and I just, I'm just trying to figure out how do we how do we fix this? Right. <laughs> this is, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, and I know I know it's a humongous question just to ask you, like, you know, Finn, let's fix it. But how? What are the what are the some of the key pieces where um, our listeners or anybody that's hearing us? You know, a lot of the work that we do at King Boston is really rooted in trying to get equity and and, and to level the playing field and get. And get people to be able to be on leveling the playing field to get people to be able to participate and flourish in 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 the Commonwealth. What are some of the ways that, as as voters or as citizens, that we can kind of stand up and and help push things in the right direction? Well, I mean, I think part of it is just to be engaged voters and in, engaged residents of, of where you where you are. Um, but I. I know I'm I'm actually a very hopeful person. And I I, I think that um, you know, when you kind of look back, you can see how just just as much as, as right now it can seem like oh, one bad thing just leads to the next bad thing. I think it's also really easy to see how one good thing, you know, kind of leads to the next good thing. You know, somebody has a somebody has, you know, we we let's say invest in better, you know, uh, better transit service. And then somebody goes and they have a good experience and they're sort of, you know, then willing to invest in the, the next transit system or they're willing to invest in their, their teachers and willing to give, you know, um, you know, let their teachers be truly well-paid professionals. And then that pays off and the kids who are coming out of that are, are, you know, able to be more productive members of society and everything kind of spirals upwards when it works just as much as everything seems to spin into crap when it's not working. So, you know, I, I I'm, I'm really hopeful about this stuff. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to rely on you to help me keep my hope, especially uh, with the <laughs> bus situation. So you bring it out in me, these conversations, Greg, I really appreciate it. And we love having you, man. You, you. I feel like I, I feel like I have a, a, a you know, how you always, you always want to have a friend in the business. 
it would it would any any world you're going into i feel yeah. like i have a friend who could explain this transportation business to me and, and and make these numbers make sense so i appreciate you being here um uh, thank you for having me and thank you for this great show can't wait till we talk property taxes but in the meantime for for listeners who are interested colin and finn's latest report new federal spending makes it crucial to add state funds for education and transportation is live at massbudget.org you can check it out there and we hope to see you 